Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. It's not the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the Black Police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock fucked up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Wonderful introduction and welcoming everybody. Once again, welcome everybody. It's great to have you join us for this exciting 
uh, presentation. My name is Veronica Finbury. I am a co-chair of the Africa Interest Group of ISIL. And I am so ecstatic to see the wonderful and amazing speakers we have today. This uh, program has been months and months of planning, and it's just so amazing to see every, all of us gathering in one place today. And I want to say personally thank you to Professor Carl Burrows, to Professor Rhoda Hasman, and to Professor Mario Nisbet and Christina Parker. Uh, it's so amazing, and I thank you so much for making the time, and I want to also appreciate uh, Gena for taking this time to moderate the session. So, Gena, the floor is yours. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Good morning. I am Gena Riasen-Jeng, and I will be your moderator for this event. Now, just a brief introduction, the transatlantic trans slave trade um, is one of the worst crimes against humanity in our history. And for over 400 years, about 12 million enslaved Africans were transported, bought, sold, and owned by other humans as legal property across the Americas, Europe, and the Caribbean. Since the abolition of slavery from the British Empire and the uh, United States, no redress or reparations has been provided for Africans um, affected by this dehumanizing trade. Today's panel aims to address three major topics, the first being reparations for the injustice against enslaved Africans and their generations, the second, reparations for Africans traumatized by the effects of slavery, and third, the process of healing between Africans affected by slavery around the globe. With me, I have four very amazing and knowledgeable people that will be um, doing presentations over the course of the next um, hour, 30 minutes. I will introduce them before their presentations, one after the other, the first being Dr. Rhoda Howard Hassman. Dr. Howard Hassman is Professor Emeritus at Wilfrid Laurie University in Canada, um, where from 20, 2003 to 2016, she held the Canada Research Chair in International Human Rights. She is the author of Preparations to Africa, which was published in 2008, and related articles, including her most recent article of 2022, Should the USA Offer Reparations to Africa for the Transatlantic Slave Trade? The link to this article will be provided in the chat for anyone who's interested. But without further ado, Professor Hassman, the floor is yours. Good morning. Sorry, I was muted. Today I'm going to talk from my 2002 to 22 article. I'm going to give my own recommendations of what the U.S. should do for as reparations to Africa, not African Americans, to Africa for the slave trade. And I'm also going to compare this to the Belgian Commission on Reparations for Colonialism, about which more later. So I believe, first, that the U.S. should support a truce commission on the slave trade. This truce commission should discuss who conducted the transatlantic trade, who was enslaved, and what were the effects on Africa and the West. It should cover, uh, should cover the from the beginning of the U.S. slave trade to the end of the illegal trade, which was approximately 1860. It should discuss African and Arab enslavers as well as American enslavers. 
It should be organized by a reputable organization such as the UN and should include African, American, and Arab commissioners, as well as scholars and activists. Its summary should be widely distributed and accessible. And I'm arguing this partly because only an authoritative truth commission could serve as a good background for negotiations between the U.S. and Africa. Especially this uh, truth commission should address questions of how the slave trade underdeveloped Africa, a question first posed many years ago by Walter Rodney, and how it developed the U.S., first posed many years ago by Eric Williams. It needs to address this question without absolving African leaders since, variant, since independence of their own responsibility for underdevelopment. This will not provide any definitive answers, but it will narrow the range of permissible lies, as Michael Ignatieff once put it. Uh, then I think the U.S. owes an apology to Africa. The absence of apologies from African, African slave trading societies or Arab societies does not absolve the United States from its own need to apologize. So far, Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush have acknowledged the evils of the slave trade, Clinton in Uganda in 1998 and Bush in Senegal in 2003, but there's been no apology. This apology has to be between equals, for example, from the U.S. President to heads of state in the African Union, or to heads of state of countries for which large numbers of slaves were taken to the U.S. This now can be determined from shipping records and genetic databases. And then there should be a second formal apology within the U.S. in order to educate American citizens about the trade. Apologies, the wording of the apology has to be agreed ahead of time between the U.S. and African um, recipients of the apology. It has to be held, held in a ceremonial venue, and the U.S. president has to present genuine remorse. Normally, an apology includes a promise of non-repetition, but this is not relevant now since nobody's going to repeat the slave trade. But it also has to include a promise of some sort of compensation. So the question is, to whom should we give the compensation? And I am recommending only symbolic financial compensation. So it could be given to the African Union or to countries from which large numbers of slaves were taken. It could be used to fund the Truce Commission, to provide commemorative and educational projects about the slave trade within Africa, to maintain African museums and historic sites of the trade, and also importantly to fund educational and commemorative projects within the United States. Now, realists would say, why would we bother with this? And one answer might be to diffuse the politics of resentment against the West, to improve relations between the United States with the African Union or specific African countries, and in general, to build trust. But criticisms would say things like, the slave traders were not our ancestors, which is true for many Americans, but as the late Kenyan-American scholar Ali Masruri put it, if you get the benefits of citizenship in the United States, then you also have the responsibilities of citizenship, including reparations. But in fact, as we know, white support, 
even for reparations to African Americans, not Africa itself, is very low, 16% in a 2019 survey. survey. Furthermore, large-scale reparations would face all the problems of foreign aid in general, such as, such as wastage, corruption, mismanagement, and lack of capacity uh, to administer the aid properly. Critics might also argue that there are more important problems, such as poverty and climate change. Further realist assessment would say, on the negative side, there's no strategic reason now for reparations. African resentment of the West has no strategic effect. No other world power is pressuring the U.S. for reparations to Africa. And African nations, even collectively, are not strong enough to threaten the U.S. However, the new multipolar world we're now in, especially with China as a power, might affect U.S.-Africa relations and make reparations worthwhile. Now I'd like to uh, talk to you a bit about the Belgian Commission on Reparations. Belgium is more advanced than the U.S. on reparations and has established a, a parliamentary commission on reparations for colonialism in Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi. There was no Belgian participation as such in the slave trade because Belgium didn't actually become a country until 1830. But we know about Congo's status as the so-called private property of King Leopold II in the late 19th and early 20th century. And we know that what sociologists call a mass atrocity crime, or a crime against humanity, was committed there with the murdering, murders and maiming of millions of Congolese. So the Belgians, first of all, commissioned a huge report. It's over 640 pages by Belgian and African historians together, single-spaced. Uh, it's unfortunately published in French and Dutch-Flemish, but not in um, English. The commission also held a testimony via Zoom by about 80 experts worldwide before representatives of the various Belgian political parties. So I presented my testimony on July 8th last year, 15 minutes testimony plus questions. And I was asked to testify only on the question of symbolic reparations. So I read about 20 pages of the report um, in French. And I believe this uh, is all going to be made available um, via the internet. Uh, but I'm not sure um, how that will be done. So my recommendations were similar but somewhat different to the ones for the United States. Again, I off suggested that Belgium offer apologies to the three former colonies because this would render relations between Africa and Belgium more equitable and might contribute to, psycholo contribute to psychological healings for both parties. I should say that for my book, Reparations to Africa, my research assistants and I conducted 74 interviews with Africans. And this is one of the things they said about apologies. Again, Belgians should draft apologies in consultation with the intended recipients, apologize separately to each former colony in a ceremonial venue, and publicize the apology widely. But I am concerned with the problem of legitimizing authoritarian rule um, and legitimizing the people who are currently in power in these three countries. So I'm wondering whether there's another way to apologize without actually uh, apologizing to people 
who are heads of state, uh, illegitimate heads of state, in my view. Uh, with regard to truce commission, this huge report is already a truce commission, but it has, of course, to be summarized, simplified, and widely publicized. Um, for re symbolic material reparations, there was a big discussion in Belgium about access to archives previously held public, so privately rather. Belgian Catholic entities have already agreed to open up all their archives, but a particular concern is the archives of Belgian mining corporations in Congo. So I think that all public and private archives should be opened and private entities should be compelled to open up their archives, whether they like it or not. I suggested an annual National Day of Remembrance, something like the Martin Luther King Day, although I'm not sure it should be a holiday because then it just becomes like a three-day weekend. It might be better to have um, remembrance ceremonies at schools, um, government institutions, and so on every year. I also recommended a national year of reflection by state, sub-state, and non-state entities on how they could make material reparations, just as is happening in the U.S. now by some universities, some corporations, and some um, municipalities. For example, corporations could institute employment and training schemes for both Africans in Africa and Af in the colonies and Af Africans in Belgium. There could be targeted scholarships, again, for these people. The government could support research chairs within Africa on Belgian colonialism, and universities could collaborate with uh, African universities, not just on the history of colonialism, but also in training people in STEM subjects, which is badly needed. I also recommended for education a year-long project to educate both Belgian and African citizens about colonialism. This happened in the UK in 2007, on the uh, 200th anniversary of the, of the abolition of the slave trade when there was a year-long education and commemoration project. These could include more memorials and educational plaques in Belgium, and in Africa, more support for museums, memorial spaces, and public educational projects. So that's it. Thank you very much. Here's my email, hasman at wlu.ca, especially if you would like access to my, uh, if you would like a copy of my testimony to the Belgians. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Hasman. And just to let participants know that we have a Q&A segment, which would be at the end, but you could send in your questions um, at the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Our next speaker is Dr. Mario Nisbet, who is a current visiting assistant teaching professor in the Department of African American Studies at Syracuse University. His home institution is the Center for African and International Studies at the University of Cape Coast in Ghana. Having taught in other universities in the United States and Kenya, his publications are available in journals such as Symbolism and Contemporary Journal of African Studies. Dr. Nisbet got his PhD from University of California at Berkeley and is the author of The Workings of Diaspora, Jamaican Maroons and the Claims to Sovereignty. This work will also be provided in the chat for anyone interested. Dr. Nisbet, over to you. Dr. Nisbet, you're muted. 
Okay, yes. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the introduction. And also thank you for the invitation. And i like to thank um, all of the organizers that put so much work in putting um, the conference together. Uh, so I'll start with my short presentation. It's titled Reparations for the Transatlantic Slave Trade for Africans as a mean of reconstituting global humanity. So I will start with the point that the crisis, we are facing a crisis in the global, in the world right now, and it's related to having an unsustainable um, global order. Our main forms of, our main models of development is destructive to humanity, and it's also unsustainable. Uh, even visions of a green wall is built through um, um, unsustainable technologies. For example, if we look at um, solar panels, the technology used to build solar panel, the solar panel itself, comes through unsustainable technology. So the technology that's supposed to be sustainable is being built through sustainable technologies. And if we look at the wider context in terms of U.S. as a model of what the world should look like or what the globe should look like in terms of development. The U.S. is only 4% of the population, but we use up about 20% of the world resource. And so, in a sense, if we want the world to be like how the U.S. is, we would need five planets to accomplish this. And I'm arguing that the origins of this current world order was birthed during the time period of the transatlantic slave trade. And the transatlantic slave trade is a crime against humanity. And this impact of the transatlantic trade slaves still continue to be a crime against humanity. Um, and as Eric Williams um, talks about in capitalism and slavery, Slavery led to the further development of capitalism and led to the further development of um, industrial industrial revolution. But at the same time, this also led to the creation of race and the creation of black people as being inferior and in terms of justifying slavery itself. So whether through colonization or colonialism, countries in Africa in the Americas, even in Asia and parts of Europe, these modern states and the international system was formed by white supremacy, or at least the foundation of white supremacy during this time period. And the transatlantic slave trade also ties slavery to Africans. So as we know, up until the 18th century, Africans weren't the main people enslaved in the world. Other people were enslaved in the world. But because of the transatlantic slave trade, slavery has been associated with Africans and people of African descent. And it created, in turn, created a global hierarchy where true white supremacy, that the Africans are supposed to be at the bottom and the Europeans supposed to be at the top. And this order lead, led, have led to the, the dehumanization of Africans that still continue today. We see today in many different forms, whether it's police brutality, whether it's um, invasions or conflict, 
we see a lot of that um, remnant of this geopolitical system of Africans at the bottom not um, able to get full rights um, apparent in our globe. So this call, this is why the call for reparation or reparative justice is important, especially at this crisis point we have in the world. In defining reparation, I'm using the UN definition, which is reparation should not be only equated with financial compensation, but it should include restitution, rehabilitation, acknowledgement of injustice, apologies, memorialization, educational reform, guarantees that such injustice won't, won't continue, as my colleague before me mentioned. So in terms of reparations, it should include all of these things, but it should also include work in the globe, we work in the global system that was actually created at the very early modern period with Africans becoming slave linked to the transatlantic slave trade. But this would also include climate change, and I also think that this needs to be a conversation not only among Africa, but among Europeans and actually among the, the globe. The, so in concluding, basically, um, the impossibility was done in terms of genocide, slavery, and colonialism. So I think that is for us to come up with ways that create another impossible world, a world that seemed impossible with the current crisis that we face in the globe and in the world um, and the situation that we have it would be very difficult for humanity to continue to live in the way that they are living with the geopolitical system changing. I think it's an opportune time to really have a discussion about reconciliation in the world that is not necessarily, you know, all those financial um, issues important. It should be also includes changing the system that created the great, the great inequality in the first place. So if we go to the past, we correct the past, we work on the present, but we also work on the future. So reparations could also take the form of not only monetary compensation, but also uh, maybe perhaps fair trade. Like for example, in Ghana, where I currently teach, um, where I currently teach, since I'm a business professor here in Syracuse, um, the global market dictates the price to Ghana in terms of how much they must sell their cocoa. If we're talking about reparations, we should talk about how about having some fair trade, African having voices in not only the United Nations, but the WTO in terms of transforming the relationship in the globe. So I always tell my students that um, we are not, as people usually say that we are destroying the planet, but I tell my students we are not so much destroying the planet, but we are destroying our capacity to live on the planet and we are destroying the ability for our children to continue to live on the planet. And only true global dialogue about the injustices that have been done in the past and having an honest conversation about where we go in the future um, is something that we need to do on reparation, I think, is center in that argument. So I'll end here. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nisbet. Um, very interesting presentations going on. Uh, we have Dr. Christina Parker-Shandel next, who is an associate professor in development, social development studies at the University of Waterloo in Canada. As a restorative justice practitioner and researcher, she focuses on how dialogic pedagogies 
facilitate inclusive spaces where all students can participate and have their voices heard. She holds a PhD in curriculum studies and teacher development and a master's of teaching from the University of Toronto. She is also a certified teacher in Ontario. She is the author of Restorative Justice in the Classroom, Liberating Students' Voices Through Relation Pedagogy, which was published in 2022. She's also the author of Peacebuilding, Citizenship and Identity, Empowering Conflict and Dialogue in Multicultural Classrooms, which was published in 2016 and co-editor of Finding Refuge in Canada, Narratives of Dislocation, published in 2021. I will be linking her website and some of her work in the chat for you. Dr. Christina, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I'm really happy to uh, to be here participating in this conversation um, on the transatlantic slave trade and reparations to Africa. Uh, at first, I wasn't quite sure how my work would fit in this panel, but as I um, think about my work and, and uh, so grateful for the previous presenters as well in terms of your thoughts about uh, what it means to create healing and, and possibilities for um, for young people is where I'm positioning my work, particularly for Black youth who are who suffer from being pushed into what I'm going to talk to you about today as what I frame as the school-to-prison pipeline. And I'm uh, going to discuss both the origins of that injustice and how we can create possibilities for transformation as a way to facilitate reparations. So I just wanted to start with this story to sort of set the stage of how I position um, this work. And uh, in Ibram Kendi's uh, book of How to Be an Anti-Racist, when he was in school, and uh, as a black youth and noticed how all of his teachers were white teachers, but in this one particular example, um, would often pick on the white students when they raised their hands, even when the black students raised their hands. So he remembers this one incident particularly when he was sitting in the back of his classroom and he noticed one of his black female peers uh, who didn't often raise her hand. She meekly put up her hand to be called upon. And although she was the first one to raise her hand, the teacher didn't choose her. Um, instead, the teacher opted to choose a white female student who was frequently called on and who sat at the front of the class. So he describes this moment of um, observing this peer of his as she slowly put her hand down with hunched shoulders, her obvious feeling of withdrawal, feeling shame. Um, and he remembers this feeling of rage and knowing and, see and seeing exactly what happened was because of race. But... As a young person he was, how was he supposed to articulate that complaint? He didn't have the power, privilege, or language to, to lodge it. Uh, assembly, he took his seats in the auditorium with his classmates, um, but when it was time to go, he refused to. He stayed seated, and um, when he was told to line up, he just uh, refused to listen to the teacher and instead just stayed uh, in his seat looking straight ahead. The teacher didn't crouch down beside him and say, what's wrong? Uh, you know, you seem upset. This isn't like you. How can I help you? Uh, instead, the teacher chose to call the principal, who then called um, uh, their, their parents and then threatened him with punishment, eventually removed him. This wasn't because he was a defiant student. It was because there was a rage that was ignited in him. It was because of him it occurred, um, but he was unable to do anything about it. So he, he questioned why the teacher didn't ask him what was troubling him. Research has shown that um, if a student of color and a white child go to the office, there's a higher chance that that student of color will be met with a more severe punishment, suspension instead of detention. 
missing recess instead of an apology, being yelled at and told what they did wrong instead of asking the simple question of what happened and how can I support you. So if you're a child and you're continuously being pushed out and witnessing exclusion in the classroom, in the hallways, in your community, the question uh, rises of, you know, is there a higher chance that that child would go to prison? Um, the research says that the answer is yes. Uh, when schools enact punishments that purposely work to target marginalized students, particularly black students, uh, the impact on those students' learning and engagement is compromised. And when they're unfairly targeted, uh, these students are more likely to skip school, disengage academically, or drop out altogether. In this way, rendered powerless, marginalized students as they are are left with few tools to advocate or support themselves, and uh, such Students often end up with less earning potential and their potential for ending up in prison increases. So clearly we can see that these exclusionary and punitive punishments uh, cause many negative impacts, both for psychological um, and physical well-being. So a present-day carceral system of inequality traces back to the hierarchy created through the slave trade. Uh, Ronaldo Walcott writes in his recent book on property that the ownership of black people persists today. Um, uh, he says that possession has um, had to be something more than ownership. So it also became authority invested in white people to deflect all inferiors. This meant that even when a white person did not actually own slaves, he or she still possessed authority over black people, whether enslaved or not. So in a post-slavery world, this cultural attitude persists. As both of the previous presenters um, pointed out, uh, white people continue to maintain the sense of superiority. Uh, the social construct has come with the expectation that black people will continue to practice the sense of subordination in a number of different ways. And the pipeline, as I refer to it here in this presentation today, represents those kinds of policies and practices that help facilitate that, that help facilitate pushing young people toward imprisonment over the course of their lifetime. It doesn't start or end there, though. Uh, it persists. And some people um, refer to this process as the cradle to prison pipeline, looking at the systemic and structural oppression that begins at birth. Um, also, little attention has been paid to what happens post-incarceration. So just to go over a little bit of the origins of the pipeline, um, many so-called discipline practices um, function as a continued form of control or oppression. So for instance, zero tolerance policies uh, are disciplinary practices that require automatic and severe punishment for certain types of behaviors, such as fighting uh, um, or possessing drugs or weapons. The problem is that they don't consider the individual circumstances or intent. And these policies have found to disproportionately affect students of color, as well as students with disabilities. Uh, next, over-policing and criminalization. So many schools rely on law enforcement to address student misbehavior. Some schools constantly have a police presence uh, that are particularly targeting certain students as well. Other students uh, have designated um, school resource, resource officers. Uh, this often results in students being criminalized for minor infractions, such as um, being arrested over a slight disruption in class or for being late. Um, Again, students of color are much more likely to be targeted. Um, and racial and socioeconomic disparities continue to impact students of color and those from low-income families, since they are more likely to attend underfunded schools that don't have adequate resources, um, mental health support, guidance counselors that um, 
are culturally responsive, particularly. Uh, these students are more likely to face bias and discrimination from educators and school administrators that are constantly putting black students in a state of surveillance. Um, and then this all leads, finally, not all encompassing, but some of the ex examples to school push-out, uh, where students who are constantly expelled or suspended are more likely to drop out, um, more likely to become involved in the criminal justice system and experience negative long-term outcomes. So considering all of this, it's important to note that the causes of the school-to-prison pipeline are very complex, and addressing the issue involves a very comprehensive approach, involves changing policies and practices in schools, law enforcement, um, the criminal justice system, as well as a commitment, a societal commitment, to addressing these issues of inequality and discrimination. So we've heard about different types of theories about what can be used to mitigate and interrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, I have my view on, on certain principles, and we'll share it today. Restorative justice in education is a concept I reference a lot in my work, and I believe that restorative justice is critical for healing from the African slave trade and from the intergenerational trauma that it has had on black people. Uh, speaking from a North American context, um, I believe that restorative justice is relevant to interrupting um, this pipeline because restorative justice is a way in which it can actually um, one, facilitate healing, but also create spaces for dialogue so people can share their views, they can talk about uh, what has happened, and they can potentially process that trauma together. So one, um, in classroom context, we can see that students could become engaged on social issues that impact them on their and their communities. Two, um, become equipped with tools to manage conflict constructively. And three, are able to come together in community to proactively build and uh, sustain strong relationships. And really a question we can ask ourselves is, you know, are we creating a generation or inve and investing in a generation of graduates that can be engaged citizens such as this, uh, prepared to navigate exclusion and bias, as well as prepared to navigate the status quo? So as someone who has spent a considerable amount of time doing classroom-based research, I believe that restorative justice is one way in which we can open up space for inclusion. So one critical uh, tool that's used with restorative justice is a peacemaking circle. It has its origins in Indigenous worldviews and Indigenous community practices that emphasize people's interconnections with the world. So circles uh, at a very basic level are when students are seated uh, in a circle facing each other and are given the opportunity to talk. The person with a talking piece has the right to speak if they choose to, and everyone else has a responsibility to listen as the talking piece goes sequentially around the circle. So this format encourages students to actively listen to one another, um, sometimes have to deal with conflict in, in a more proactive way, and it provides everyone the chance to speak if they, if they would like to. So it's a simple yet pra uh, powerful process Many organizations and communities use peacemaking circle processes in conjunction with the um, criminal justice system. So in my work with youth diversion programs, I facilitated circles um, as an alternative for youth who are going through the traditional criminal justice system. So some youth think that, oh, if they have diversion, they would initially come into the circle thinking it would actually be easier than going through court. However, almost always, they say it was a much more challenging process. And it's challenging because um, they actually had to speak uh, instead of sitting um, behind a box while someone spoke for them. And they had to hear about 
how um, their actions may have Im impacted one another, but also talk about what was going on for them that led to those actions. So in most cases, that dialogue that occurs in the circle not only transforms the outcome of the conflict, but it transforms the in individual as well. So my research is focused on classroom-based practices of restorative justice, and the literature is very clear in terms of its outcome, that engaging in this kind of dialogic process uh, would teach uh, and support people to communicate uh, effectively and safely and facilitate uh, safe spaces for learning. So I just wanted to use, bring this visual for, um, to help us better uh, understand what restorative justice and education could look like in schools. And it's conceptualized by Kathy Evans and Dorothy Vandering, um, where they talk about how restorative justice and education could promote uh, accountability for one's actions, foster healing and nurture relationships. These three pillars uh, represented here are just and equitable relationships, conflict transformation, uh, as well as nurturing and repairing uh, relationships. And these tenants here emphasize at, at the heart of it all, that people are worthy and relational and deserving of respect and equity. So um, the increase in the popularity of restorative justice, uh, as you can see in terms of a lot of um, writing and studies that have been done on it recently, is really indicative of a shift in consciousness toward believing that exclusion does not equal justice. Um, you know, restorative justice speaks back to the punitive white supremacist frameworks. Uh, it prevent, presents an alternative platform to engage with young people where educators and, and admin could really reframe their misconceptions about student rebellion and thinking that, um, uh, you know, how can we actually see those concepts of when students are uh, potentially rebelling, but actually looking at it as productive behavior, because those students are not acting out as they might be called. They're actually, if we look at it as they're hurting out and they're processing that hurt and trauma, and, and they're coming to school as a way in which they can potentially um, heal. Uh, so equipping teachers and administrators and school personnel with tools to understand racial justice and what it looks like in the classroom as well as in disciplinary forms is critical to enriching the lives of students who have been unfairly targeted. So I just wanted to give a, a quick example um, uh, in, in my study of restorative justice in the classroom. I found that many of the students felt that their participation in circles um, allowed them the chance to speak and be heard. Um, one male student of color said that he really enjoyed this process because um, he had the chance to speak to most people in the class. In one in another classroom where there was a lot of clique culture that led to very divisive connections um, and, and rigid boundaries, uh, it, it really helped to facilitate community. And there was one black female student who had been frequently sent to the office. And in an interview with her, she said to me, uh, quote, when we go to the office, it's like we don't even get into trouble. They just ask, they just talk to us and ask how we're doing. I don't even know why they bring the person you fought with to sit right beside you. But as much as you don't want to talk to them, You've got to, and it actually makes things better, in the quote. So I asked the principal of this school um, what she thought about the fact that uh, some of her students were describing the office as a place they go to uh, when they don't get into trouble. And um, as expected, she saw this as a compliment. She said, um, quote, well, yeah, of course, because that's what we want. We bring them down here, and uh, we want to know how they're doing, and we want to help them feel better. We do that, and then we don't usually see them again, or at least not as often, end quote. So you know, thinking about this and the possibilities for trans to Kendi's experience, you know, I wonder how it might have differed uh, if he was in a school that was committed to a restorative justice um, culture. So 
considering all of this, and because we know the power of dialogue, I think that if we invest in um, training educators, community leaders to practice and prepare young people for these dialogic opportunities, it could have lasting impacts for promoting and honoring our democratic society. And especially in the context in which we are speaking about today is a critical process for engaging and healing from the impact of slavery. So many people think that restorative justice is only about making sure kids don't get suspended and that they graduate and that they don't end up trapped in the school to prison pipeline, but it is much more than that. And to me, it's about implementing these equity-based programming that I've spoken about today. So I believe that this work involves healing and um, it's an all hands community approach. It involves teachers, social workers, law enforcement, community service professionals. So, you know, when we're looking they're not top-down. Um, they're really, you know, bottom-up strategies that involve thinking about how we can acknowledge that non-racist is not anti-racist, that we really have to think about um, ways in which to use intentional action to decolonize approaches, uh, to name the genocide, displacement, replacement, and profiting that occurs uh, under settler colonialism. Um, and uh, my version of restorative justice, as, as I've talked about it here today, is not about control. It really is about pedagogy and uh, questioning, you know, what are we using schools for? What, what is the intention of it? And what are we going to do? Uh, I recently, recently published a book that um, just was, came out last month, uh, and it's focused on how to build a kind of relational pedagogy that uh, I described today and uh, how we can use an anti-racist approach to use restorative justice. I'd also recommend colorizing restorative justice for those uh, interested in learning more about this approach. Um, so uh, just to close, I wanted to share this quote from Miriam Kaba, who writes about transformative justice and abolition, who says, uh, justice is the ability for people to get what they need in order to lead dignified lives. So um, thank you so much. I think I will pause there and uh, look forward to questions and discussion at the end. Thank you so much, Dr. Christina. That was an amazing presentation. We have one more person to go before we take questions. Just to remind the participants that you can use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen to send in questions for the panelists. Last but not least, we have Dr. Carl Patrick Burroughs, who is a historian and thought leader working um, in the U.S. and Liberia. Dr. Burroughs? There we are. Thank you for the presentation. Um, <clears throat> I think I'll do one slide at a time. Thank you so much uh, for the introduction, and I would like to extend my appreciation to the organizers for the invitation. Uh, before I begin, I want to make it clear that in um, putting this presentation together, my goal was not to um, affect the emotions of anyone. And, um, you know, we're having conversations now about um, presentations on history, making individuals feel uh, bad or responsible for wrongdoing. And um, I have relatives and friends in Florida, so I hope to be able to visit them. I don't want to be, you know, uh, excluded from, from going uh, to any of those states that have imposed those um, restrictions. Uh, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that we need an honest accounting of the impact of the slave trade on Africa, 
uh, and from there we can decide how we proceed. But um, it's important to have, you know, the uh, assessment of the impact. So the transatlantic slave trade uh, was responsible for the removal of 12.5 million, it's estimated, uh, African captives uh, to the Americas. Others died en route uh, to the Americas, both on the continent and uh, on the Atlantic. From 1492 to 1820, most people don't know this, but five times as many Africans landed in the Americas as did Europeans. I'm so sorry about the uh, loss of, okay, so I apologize for that. So what I wanted to present was a screen showing some of the areas of Africa that were most uh, impacted by um, the traffic. And as you can see, uh, places like uh, Benin, Biafra, the, the Bight of Biafra, the Gold Coast, um, and certainly West Central Africa, Angola, and the Congo were heavily impacted. And now I want to look at, uh, present to you the literature, uh, the historical literature uh, uh, regarding the deleterious impact, and there were various uh, of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, in one context, we could talk about the cultural impact, and, and one result was um, alcohol abuse. Uh, prior to the traffic uh, in West Africa in particular, there was fermented palm wine, but that was replaced through the slave trade with distilled liquors, especially rum. Uh, and rum in particular was critical here because it was used as a kind of currency along with guns for the purchase of captives. By the late 1700s, about 750,000 gallons of rum were being sent from the Caribbean and New England. And by 1860, it was up to uh, about 6.1 million uh, gallons. Um, the cultural aspect of the trade, the impact it had, often isn't discussed, uh, but it, these are some of the dimensions that we need to capture if we're going to have a full understanding uh, and appreciation of uh, the, the consequences of the trade on the continent. Psychologically, one impact was um, distrust. Obviously, the hunting and selling of humans left a deep and abiding sense of distrust among Africans. Research shows that distrust is highest today in areas of Africa where the slave trade was most intense. Trust, it should be noted, is an indispensable foundation for economic prosperity. It's a form of social capital that is important for economic progress. Another psychological dimension, which uh, Professor Nesbitt uh, alluded to in his presentation, has to do with the ongoing, long-standing inferiority complex. Um, we need to remember 
that um, one justification for the slave trade was that Africans were subhuman. And uh, that meant then we lacked humanity. You know, there were several dimensions of what it means to be human that was considered to be absent from Africans, but present in uh, pe the people in the West. So Eurocentrism sanitizes Western history while patronizing and even demonizing the non-West. It presents the West in terms of its noblest achievements, science, progress, humanism. But of the non-West, it presents it in terms of its deficiencies, real or imagined. Africans have imbibed this worldview, and it affects not only our relationship with the West, but our sense of self and what it is we're able to accomplish. Um, so if we consider the psychological dimensions to be important, one of the questions that have to be addressed is how then do we propose to unravel uh, inferiority, the inferiority complex that has become uh, ingrained. Another dimension that tends to be overlooked, a consequence of the slave trade, is gender inequality. I apologize for the typo. Initially, when the traffic began, more men were exported than women. The demand was for men. This resulted in a gender imbalance, which helped to entrench polygamy. Women then took on tasks previously done by the men who had been removed. The multiple wives who entered into these polygamous relationships were acquired mainly by the privileged sellers of captives because they were the ones who now were the most successful and, um, and powerful within these communities. Politically, there was a power shift that occurred as a consequence of the slave trade. Wealth and power flowed to the kidnappers and sellers of captives. What many don't appreciate when we talk about African traditions as if they're timeless, unchanging, what we don't often take into account is that earlier structures of political and religious authorities were altered and in some cases destroyed because of this traffic. Uh, the economic dimension, which often is what uh, comes to mind when people talk about uh, impact and potential reparations, and the economic impact involved the transfer of labor, but also of skills, which, again, the skills aspect tends to be overlooked. So Africa lost 15 million people, if we include those who died en route, uh, but in the process, skills were transferred, including rice growing and metal smelting to name a few. The smelting of iron in Africa, West Africa in particular, was considered by Europeans to have been superior 
to what was uh, available, the technology available in Europe at the time. But what the West had was coal deposits, which fueled the manufacture of iron on a large scale. Um, but Western uh, um, visitors to, to Africa would have their tools repaired, iron tools and, and, and so forth, and would remark on the advanced uh, nature of the, uh, the knowledge and technology at the time. So rice growing was fairly common in a large swath of West Africa, beginning from uh, the Senegambia area, of course, all the way down through to Liberia. Uh, and uh, initially, the, the slave ships would be f filled with rice as a means of feeding those who were being brought to the Americas. Uh, other staples had been tried initially, uh, tubers, yams, cassavas, and such, but those tend to spoil. With rice, rice will keep until you add water. And, um, and so initially rice was being bought on the coast, but it was decided at some point that instead there should be an effort to capture Africans who had rice growing skills, bring them to the America and uh, place them in areas that were swampy so that they then could grow rice and the rice seeds were brought, you know, as well. Um, West Africa went from an exporter of rice to an importer by 1761. That imbalance remains. Africa is constantly importing rice as we speak. Overall, what we face is a form of arrested development. Uh, in the year 2000, per capita income in Africa was about $1,834 compared to $8,809 for the rest of the world. A scholar uh, who studies the economic impact uh, suggested that 72% of the average income gap between Africa and the rest of the world would not exist today, and 99% of the income gap between Africa and other developing countries were it not for the slave trade. So but for the transatlantic slave trade, Africa would be on par with Asia and Latin America. What I have at the end of the presentation are references to sources that uh, were used in putting this together. And um, anyone who's interested, I'd be willing to, to share them uh, with you as well. But as I end, I really would like to make this plea for, uh, for those in the audience and, and beyond that um, we consider the discussion of the transatlantic slave trade much as we would other crimes against humanity that we freely, widely discuss. You take the Second World War, for example, 
um, there's no masking the fact that, um, you know, there were, the, the war was begun by the, um, the Nazis in Germany. And that it wasn't all the Germans who were responsible, but it was a system that was in place in Germany at the time. And, uh, and then Japan entered on the, the side of the Germans. We, we have those discussions. The American uh, war for independence would make no sense if the role of the British, you know, empire wasn't considered. And, uh, so in schools, the involvement of, uh, the British and the fact that the, the war was, um, was brought upon, you know, in part by, uh, the demands from, from, from the empire, the colonial power at the time. Those are widely discussed. But it's when we come to the transatlantic slave trade that there's a tendency to say, uh, assessing the, uh, consequences somehow or the other is an encroachment on other people's sense of self and, and their ability to, um, to feel as if they're not um, being blamed. So thank you. I'll end it there, and hopefully we can get some questions. Thank you, Dr. Burroughs. Um, <clears throat> we have a question in the chat. I've noticed that Dr. Hasman responded, but I do believe these responses are private, so I'll just read it out, and Dr. Hasman, you could um, unmute and answer the question. That way um, all of the participants will be able to hear the answer. The question says, if there is a concern about legitimizing certain leaders in Africa, could the apology be made directly to representatives of the ethnic and linguistic groups who were impacted by the slave trade? Yeah, there I go. Um, I thought that was an excellent question, um, an ex excellent suggestion, which hadn't really occurred to me. The other advantage of that would be that slave trading um, ethnic groups within Africa, such as the Ashanti in Ghana, would then have a um, precedent to apologizing for to apologize to the groups within Africa from whom they took slaves. So it would be a better specification of who was likely to actually have been enslaved if apologies were offered, as this uh, person suggests, to representatives of the groups most likely to have been enslaved. May, may I reply to Dr. Burroughs for a moment for his excellent presentation? Uh, I'd just like to note, Dr. Burroughs, that several European countries have indeed acknowledged that the slave trade should have been a crime against humanity. I mean, legally it wasn't, but should have been considered a crime against humanity at the time, and that we now consider it a crime against humanity. But those countries will not go as far as apologizing. They simply make that acknowledgement, and they leave it at that, so far as I know so far. All right, I'll just add one more follow-up question for you, Dr. Hasman. Um, my recent research focused on truth commissions, and I realized that you mentioned it in your presentation. However, some of the criticisms of truth commissions are that they are basically dependent on um, 
the will of government. How do you think this will play, even if a truth commission is set up to investigate what happened um, during the slave trade? Well, of course, their development they dependent on the will of government. Uh, one thing that we're not even talking about is the 10 million people taken by the Arab slave traders. And I think the reason for that is that the Arab countries are not democracies. Uh, possibly people are less concerned because the Arab enslavers are brown people, not white people. But of course it will depend on the will of governments. The U.S. Congress has voted so far for a commission to study whether there should be a commission on the slave trade, on, on, on slavery within the United States. That's as far as they've got. They, they haven't even said we should have something in the United States yet. Obama himself vetoed it originally, probably because he figured people would be too angry at him as a black president um, for suggesting there should be a commission to study the effects of slavery and, and Jim Crow and post-Jim Crow in the United States. All these things depend on governance. Of course they do. Thank you. Um, Dr. Nisbeth. I would like to comment, uh, if I may, on... Um, the point made by Professor Howard. Hafton. Sure, go ahead. And I, I, I would suggest that there is a discussion going on among scholars, and there has been a, a discussion regarding the trans-Sahara slave trade. But we wouldn't necessarily expect to see that discussion enter into the context of societies like this, associations like this in the West. So what often happens is that issues that affect the West are discussed in the West. But I think it, 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 it's um, unfair to suggest that, it, you know, we aren't having that discussion about the trans-Sahara slave trade, uh, trade because of race. And I, I, I think... Um, that the discussion is there. The scholars have been, historians have been assessing the impact on Africa. Uh, among Muslims in West Africa, there, there's been discussions, you know, longstanding and, and growing uh, about um, the differences, you know, between Arab Muslims and, uh, and the, the consequence of uh, the, the Trans-Sahara the Trans slave trade, et cetera. But that's a discussion for another day. Well, I think that um, the key thing is that we're having this discussion at all after centuries. And there's precedence for reparation in that reparations were paid to the slaveholders of the West Indies by the British government. Reparations were paid by the Haitian people who liberated themselves. They had to pay reparations to the French. And then suddenly we get into this discussion of the possibility of reparations to Africa and, um, you know, what is offered instead of apologies. So I, I, I think, you know, we, we want to be sure that we are looking at this historically, looking at the precedence that has, has existed. And, um, and I would just add that we need to do it fully because there is a growing body of work on the uh, – Trans-Sahara slave trade and its deleterious impact. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. Uh, my next question is for Dr. Nisbeth. 
you're from University of Cape Coast, and I think Ghana in general and Cape Coast have done a pretty good job with memorialization and keeping some of the castles to um, educate young people about the history of slavery in the country. How do you think other countries in Africa can sort of um, use some of these mechanisms to also educate our young people so that they know what the history is? But not just people within Africa, but other people that come to these countries, let's say from Europe and the Americas, to see firsthand how people have been impacted and how uh, the slave trade did happen. Cool. I mean, I think, well, I'm, I'm originally from the Caribbean. I was born in the Caribbean. Right, thanks for the question. Originally born in the Caribbean, but I. Um, Moved. I was born in the British Caribbean, a British colony, and then I moved to the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is like a U.S. territory, and it used to also be a Danish colony where a lot of the enslaved Africans actually came from the Gold Coast. So um, I'm, I'm a full-time lecturer in the Gold Coast, but I think even in Ghana, I think that the conversation is coming up more, and also I think they need to have more of a conversation because... Um, the castles, even though the castles are the different things, um, they're usually in Ghana. The idea is that when people come to visit, is um, the idea is that we go to the castles. And um, my current department, where I'm working in the, the department, sorry, the Center for African and International Studies, the director of the department also make arguments of that the Africans that came, that went to the Americas, often they didn't come from around the, um, the castles themselves. They came from much further inland. And also what is, you know, like we need to do more research actually in the communities that they came from. But also to, there's different dynamics to like, to sometime at least in Ghana with my students, sometimes the idea is that the slave trade negatively affected those who were enslaved and went to the Americas. But oftentimes I bring up the conversation that we had mothers, we had fathers, brothers and sisters actually lost their family members. And, you know, I try to make them think about, like, imagine if your brother just disappeared, your sister just disappeared. Or if you even have children and you were not able to protect them, you know, what kind of damage is done? And um, as also my colleague raised in terms of the psychological effect, you know, you have, you, have, you know, ripple psychological effect, um, on the continent, and to me, one of the biggest issues was the issues of distrust, you know, like in terms of um, distrust, and I think that even increased the instability. And he also raised the argument of like, also the issues of African, are they complicit? So like, in what happened? Um, and so it's something that I'm actually grappling with, because many of the states that, in many ways, that were victim of the transatlantic slave trade. They themselves, uh, you know, also, you know, were involved in it, but there were no country in Africa that wasn't negatively affected by the slave trade. There was no territory that I think didn't lose members from their own society. So the issue to me is, is, is a question of are we blaming the victim versus did Africa fully participate in it um, with full you know, autonomy in the sense of, or uh, was it a race to the bottom where this group is able to get guns quicker than I am able to, and if I don't get them, then the other group would be able to conquer me and I lose my people. 
Like, so it's something I'm grappling to thinking about, and it's something that I try to raise with my students, and I think it's becoming more of a conversation as we discuss more things about it. But I haven't visited much countries in West Africa, so I'm not sure of the level of the debate there. But I think it's important to have this debate, internal and external. Thank you. I see um, Dr. Bui wants to make a comment. And um, actually, there's a comment in the question box about what you just mentioned. Uh, is it really a trade where Africans were willingly um, participating in, or was it facilitated by uh, the Europeans and the Americans who sort of created this market and deemed uh, Black people as lesser than they are? Dr. Bui, you can yeah. make your comment before I move on to the next question. Yes, thank you. Without taking much away, because I see some really fascinating questions in the QAA, and I really hope everybody can get to it. I just really wanted to make a quick point on Dr. Nisbet's um, uh, response and, uh, you know, the question you are asking in terms of Ghana and Cape Coast. From my subjective experience, you know, as a Liberian, I know, and uh, a, 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 refugee, a person who lived as a refugee in Ghana where I went to school, I actually did my A-levels in Cape Coast uh, at Infantiman Girls, right near the castle that you were talking about, you know, and I also recently taught at the University of Cape Coast a along with Dr. Nisbet. So um, my limited experience as a student growing up in both Liberia and Ghana, there seemed to be a huge disjoint, and Professor Burroughs can attest to this. We don't grow up learning about the transatlantic slave trade in our educational system. It's not sustainable. And it was just amazing listening to Dr. Hasman talk about, and Dr. Parker talking about how we can really, not just for the West, but as Africans, we also need to consciously incorporate this into our educational system. We go to the castle, we learn about the dehumanizing experience, but then there's the disjoint when we get back to school. We don't really learn about it. We don't, they don't really teach it. And even up to university, I went to University of Ghana, and bless his soul, Kwame Nkrumah instituted the African Studies Program for all African students that go to the University of Ghana. We weren't taught the transatlantic slave uh, uh, trade and how it impacted upon us as Africans on the continent and our generations for us in Liberia. So uh, I just really hope this conversation get wider and very important, as Dr. Nisa is saying, we need to really engage in our institutions back home, not just abroad. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bruni. Um Dr. Christina. I like that your presentation sort of brought parallels on how um, basically white supremacy and slavery still plays a role in our learning institutions. How do you think uh, some of these things could be platformed better for people that say slavery happened so many years ago and that people should just get over it and move on? Sorry, I didn't hear the last part of your question. Um, um, I asked how would the parallels of slavery and um, white supremacy and how it affects um, black children in schools, how do you think it could be platformed better to sort of respond to comments that slavery happened so many years ago and that people should just get over it and move on? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think... Um, 
I think that that's how uh, schools are really set up in many ways, that they are are presenting the sense of neutrality in a way to signify um, that uh, things have changed and that's not the way it is. And um, however, I think because uh, because um, when 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 people are not paying attention and are actually enacting these behaviors and are so oblivious to it, uh, whether it's part of like the hidden and implicit curriculum and the ways in which um, the history is taught or not taught or glossed over, it it, it really is troubling. And I think uh, oftentimes people think that it can be solved through thematic periods, through, uh, you know, having Black History Month or putting a Black author on a reading list or, um, you know, in terms of Indigenous communities wearing Orange Shirt Day. But that's really not enough. You know, we really have to think about how do we um, critically think about, you know, what we are learning, what we are teaching and with whom we are learning with and uh, and really reflect on that. And really, again, thinking about the intentional action through um Critical race theory vary in classrooms. We need to use culturally responsive methods. We need to really um, continuously be naming how we can center decolonizing approaches in the classroom that that name the displacement um, of, uh, of 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 Africans around the world and the ways in which uh, settler colonialism continues to persist, uh, both in in the curriculum and in the the pedagogy as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I think we have time for a couple more questions. Um, there's one in the chat, and someone talks about how slavery basically is sort of in, ignored by the UN system, even within um, international criminal law, as it's not provided for specifically as a crime against humanity and how recently um, trafficking of persons is what they've been using to or define as modern-day slavery. Does anyone want to comment on that, basically the UN system and how it has um, I can, basically I can, intentionally kept slavery out of the discussion? No, I, can, I can comment on that, if, you, if I may. May I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Slavery was outlawed under international law in 1926. That's just a fact. I mean, it doesn't mean that slavery stopped, but it was outlawed as of 1926. The International Criminal Court can only deal with matters which took place since 2002. The treaty to establish it was in 1998. It only came into existence in 2002. So it doesn't have any uh, remit to look at historical crimes, much as we might like it to. Um, so you are right that in part it's trafficking in women now, but there are other kinds of slavery, such as slave laborers, um, which is a, a very common practice, unfortunately. But uh, these legal me mechanisms can't deal with historic crimes. The best we can do is say that should have been considered a crime but it wasn't. Slavery was was legal at the time, unfortunately. All right. Does anyone want to comment on that before we ask another question? No. All right, Dr. Burroughs. Um, I'm thinking of this uh, from a development point of view. 
what we're seeing is that a lot of African states still feel the effects of the slave trade and um, are sort of stagnant when it comes to, well, not stagnant, but very slow pace when it comes to development um, as a result of slavery and colonialism. What would your comment be in terms of Western governments that um, still impose some neocolonialist rules towards African countries um, in terms of aid or helping in development? So I think that um, any steps forward right, needs to be rooted in um, a proper assessment of what the impact was. And you know, that requires reviewing the historical literature and such. But I think we also need to take into account important differences that exist between countries in the West and those on the continent. Countries on the continent did not exist at the time of the slave trade. Those states that existed, those polities that existed prior to the emergence of this traffic ended up being destroyed in part by that traffic. So new entities emerged in part because they were facilitating the trade. And then subsequently, uh, you know, colonialism just built upon the the remnants of the transatlantic slave trade. (laughs) And there was no effort or no, no opportunity for recovery by Africans. Uh, and the states that we have now are the legacy of colonialism in many respects. On the other hand, in the West, there has been continuity since the time of the slave trade. There are institutions that benefited or were implicated that continue to exist up to this point. I think that we need to recognize those fundamental differences because when we talk about, you know, reparations as such, um, it's to me hard to argue for the expectation of reparations from entities that only recently emerged, whereas insurance companies or banks or, you know, other institutions that Clearly, we can document where involved and derive some of their wealth from this traffic. Um, they, they occupy a different space, a different relationship legally and otherwise. Yeah. So that, those are my reflections. Thank you. We have a question in the chat from Emmanuel, who basically is questioning how important this discussion is um, and do we need to have this discussion just within academics in Africa or does it need to move to the West? How seriously do you think the West is taking this discussion on um, the transatlantic slave trade and the need for reparations for um, Africans and people of African descent? Anyone can like answer on that. I mean, I could, I, I could answer that. I think that I think that it's important to have the discussion in Africa. It's very important to have the discussion in Africa. And I think it's because if you look at the population, I feel that that the transatlantic slave trade affected Africa 
and people of African descent. Most people of African descent, they live on the continent. 90% of people of African descent live on the continent of Africa, while 10% also live outside of the continent. So the continent, I think, is very important in the discussion, but I also think that how are you defining the West? Because the reparation movement is very strong in the West. So I think, if anything, the conversation needs to be more even so on the continent because it's strong in the Caribbean. Um, it's strong, especially the um, Anglophone-speaking Caribbean. It's growing in Haiti. It's very. I think it's strong in the United States. And Dutch have the Dutch government said they would give reparations. You see people in the UK also individual families talking about reparation. So I think the movement is strong and it's growing. So I think it also needs to grow in Africa where Africans are coming more on board to discuss um, reparations. Um, if I may? Um, yes, yeah, sure, go ahead. I think that the movement for reparations is definitely growing and is very strong in the Caribbean. The problem is when you ask who's taking it seriously, and the answer is not uh, govern- the government of the United States. I mean, that's, we're a long way, as I said before, from reparations to African Americans, let alone reparations to Africans themselves. Um, the former Prime Minister of uh, Britain, David Cameron, went to the Caribbean and just said, no way even though the Caribbean demand is quite reasonable, it's for what is for what is the equivalent of the reparations to land to slave owners in the Caribbean in 1834. So I think it's up to something like 12 billion pounds in, in our money. It's, that seems quite reasonable, but Cameron just said no way. So unfortunately, um, it's not yet, I think, influential enough to, to get reparations except possibly for these small symbolic kinds of things, which maybe you will get. I mean, the city of Amsterdam, for example, apologized recently. I don't know. Dr. Nisbet says the Netherlands apologized. I think I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I didn't see it myself. I'm not questioning him. So it's, the question is, how seriously do the people who really ought to pay the reparations take it? And the answer is not much. I have to look, in terms of the Dutch, I cite in a newspaper report, but I have to look to find out exactly um, the, where I sign. But I think the reparation movement in the United States, in terms of the government, I think they are not taking it seriously. But if you look at Georgetown University, Harvard University, um, Evansville in um, Illinois, um, you look at Rosewood, you look at Tulsa, they have been reparation given, and it's symbolic and it's not significant, but there's some movement there, I think, in terms of institutions, maybe. But the government itself, uh, yes, the U.S. government itself is not take it, taking it seriously, but you have movements in different states, including California, where there's a lot of discussion about reparations. So I think it's I think it's growing, but the government, yes, I would agree with the government isn't taking it serious, but I think... In time, they will start taking it more serious as people raise issues, and I think as geopolitical system change, I think that will come up more. Yes. To to respond to your question, I I would say that I think it's necessary for the conversation to take place in all of the relevant spaces on the continent, in the, the U.S., in the Caribbean, 
et cetera. Um, but I agree with Professor Nesbitt that there's a need for much more to be done on the continent itself for the reasons he stated. I would also want to quote Frederick Douglass, who said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, and it never will. And so it is through these discussions that the demands build and that they then can register with the governments, you know, that are currently not taking the question of reparation seriously. And um, I'll remember personally the organizing to end apartheid in South Africa and the role of students who called for divestment from, uh, on the part of their universities from you know, companies doing business in apartheid, et cetera. And initially it seemed like a pipe dream, but it grew and eventually the pressure you know, came to be brought to bear. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic in the long term. Um, say pessimism of the mind, the Italians say, but optimism of the spirit. And um, I think the discussions will fuel that process, especially in a world that we're seeing now that is um, bipolar or multipolar, um, the chances are better. Thank you so much. I see we are almost out of time. We have one more minute. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of our panelists um, for taking the time to make these wonderful presentations. I'm sure everyone has learned from them. We still have a few questions coming in, but unfortunately we do not have time for it. Um, you could reach out to the panelists at any time, um, and I'm sure they will be happy to answer your questions. Thank you so much for having me as a moderator. It has been an honor and a pleasure. And until the next program, have a wonderful day and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, everybody. It was so great. I'll be in touch again directly. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. Thank you, everybody. Into the papers, let's quickly explore uh, what they have for us. And uh, we'll start with the Daily Graphic newspaper, but let me announce that we'll be joined shortly by media consultant Liz Hafron Asari. Okay, Doke, so we start with the Daily Graphic newspaper. Fight insecurity, second urges African leaders. And of course, the very first time that a Ghanaian is back becoming head of the, the Catholic Church in Africa, so to speak, his Eminence Richard Cardinal Kuya Bawaber, uh, President of SECAM. I'll bring you some details of that story on page 16. We also have law school entrance exams, prospective students to sign undertaking. That's according to the General Legal Council. And this statement has stirred the hornet's nest because it's got a lot of people talking about why students have to sign an undertaking of this nature. Yesterday, interacting with Suleymana Brahima, Executive Director of the Media Foundation for West Africa, I actually read this undertaking that students have to sign. You sign away your rights to uh, get any retaliating of your scores. You sign away your rights to basically seek any redress, any form of redress on the back of this exam. You don't have the right to even know what the path mark is. And I asked 
especially as a student of law myself. Uh, some people are afraid in my position to talk about these issues because guess what? They feel they'll be victimized, but someone <laughs> must bail the cat. So the question is, uh, to my former dean, Dina Tuguba, to whom um, Professor Kweku Asari has addressed that question, and the others on the General Legal Council, how can it be that you have an exam and nobody knows what the pass mark is? And so what? It's discretionary, it's unilateral, it's at the, the, the what? Behest of the powers that be. So at, in any given year, for example, <clears throat> the General Legal Council could decide the pass mark is 70% because this year so many people have crossed the 50% uh, mark and we don't have enough space. While in previous years, by and large, it has been 50%. And it's all discretionary. How? How can we have that? When I attended the University of Ghana as a postgraduate student, there were different phases. Uh, you sit the entrance exam. You have to pass two essay questions. You have to write some sense. They'll check your grammar, your, your analytical skills, your knowledge of current affairs. Then you get to the next stage where, you know, it will be whittled down. Then the interview stage. Why can't we have a system where people know that, look, this is what it takes? Fair. I mean, they determined, even when I was entering the University of Ghana Law School uh, or faculty, they determined the pass mark, which, well, maybe not too many of us knew or nobody knew. But how can we sustain such a system? Not at our primary level, not at the basic level. BECE, not at the SHS level, not at the university level does that apply. But once it gets to law school, then all of a sudden everything is a haze, misty, uh, very vague, ambiguous. Why? You know, it's a question really our, our legal system must address. And I'm wholly for what uh, Professor Kwekwasari says. I am blunt. I say it as it is. It makes absolutely no sense. Just a control mechanism. And in the meantime, you have the likes of Kenya, Rwanda, all of whom didn't have law schools when we got our law school, Kirti or Kwame Nkrumah. And these very people who today are the elites, the luminaries, uh, when, when it comes to legal education, went through that system without any hurdles. Yet, look at how... We, we, we've, we've turned what, what we've turned the system into. It's heartbreaking, really. And like I said, I really don't care who feels offended, whose corns feel treaded on. The truth is the truth. As an old vandal, truth stands. Anyway, uh, I'll be getting into that story as well, but reparations for Africa, long overdue. I have, I have quite some thinking on this as well. While I feel, yes, like the Benin bronzes that are being returned, artifacts that were looted that are being returned from Germany and Belgium recently, uh, the, 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 the tooth, the only bit that was left, only fragment left of um, Patrice Lumumba, after the Belgians, you know, oversaw that he was killed, his body, you know, dissolved in acid and all of that cruel way of dispatching somebody. But apart from that, Yes, maybe, yes, yeah, reparation, I agree. But I feel with what we've had, how many, how many, look, 
how long ago has it been since we hit independence? And I see you, Liz. I'll be coming to you shortly. But I'm just giving Ben to some thoughts this morning. How many years have we been independent in Ghana? 65. Within that period, what have we done for ourselves? Within this period, we should have done enough to prove to the, the, the colonialist powers, the imperialists, that what Kwame Nkrumah said was true, that we can man our own affairs. Yeah, we're manning our own affairs all the way to the IMF. So how can't we make, why can't we make something out of the Sika we have? We have it all. All right, Liz, a very good morning to you. Good morning. I get passionate about these matters because as a young person looking, sometimes you go to other countries and you look at your own country and you feel irked. Your spirit is provoked because you look at us like, uh, you know, mention was made a short while ago about Cuba, right? Cuba has been an, under an embargo since the, what, 1950s, since Fidel Castro and his people came to power, and all the way till now, stiffer under Donald Trump, the, being eased up a bit now, but they survived. I have lived in Cuba. They've survived to the point where these antique vehicles, people travel to Cuba just to watch them. They realized they didn't have much, so they capitalized on Tourism, you should go there and see what they're doing. We have everything yet. Your quick thoughts on that, and then we can talk about legal education. Nothing in this country makes sense to me anymore. <laughs> Necessity is a matter of invention. So if you look at Cuba, because they are closed, they know that they have to develop, they have to find a way out for themselves. They're not depending upon anybody but themselves. So they work at what they have, and they sustain and keep what they have. And, and so if you look at Cuba, Cuba looks like it's heaven on earth because they've done everything for themselves. Um, again, when you're open, um, like we and talk about free trade, and then um, you, have, you have this globalized uh, world where it has become like a village and everything is being thrown at you. You are not close like Cuba is. So you are accepting everything left, right, center. You are not producing anything for yourself. And therefore, instead of going forward, we seem to be going backwards because um, when, you, when you produce something in Ghana, your cost is so high, you don't know how much you're going to sell it for. And then again, we have developed ourselves into a people who um, believe that anything that comes from outside is better than what we have. And so when we are looking at quality, we are looking at quality with regards to what is produced in America and the UK and Germany. And we are not patronizing what we are producing ourselves. But if you don't patronize what you are producing, then your producers don't get enough money to be able to improve what they are giving you in the first place. So, um, again, we shoot ourselves in the foot because if you go into a shop and you see something that is made outside and there's something that is made in Ghana, you're likely to pick what is made outside because you think that it's of better quality. But they, they, have, they have done it so because they have bought their own things over time and so their factories get better and better. We do not patronize our stuff so our factories do not get better because they are always cash trapped. And if we don't look at that and we, and we don't um, avert our minds to um, patronizing what we ourselves are producing, we won't go anywhere. 
Mm. Well, uh, just a, a bit of that story for those who are watching us. So page 16, the, on the law school entrance exams, critics including lawyers, law students, and some civil society organizations have poured scorn on the decision, of course, which has created a heated public uh, discussion. Uh, that is to have this undertaking not to challenge the results of the examination. However, those in support of the decision think the GLC is being practical owing to the limited space in the Ghana uh, School of Law compared to the overwhelming number of Bachelor of Law uh, graduates who want to enter law school to read the professional course. So what this simply means, Liz, is it's not that you are not qualified. It's not that you don't know enough. It is just that because we have a paucity of space, we're going to do everything possible to eliminate you <laughs> in, in whichever way possible. And for me, that is mind-boggling. It is fat fatalistic, and it is even unpatriotic, because like I'm saying, in other countries, you, you know one thing that even makes this entire saga so nauseating? The point that, I think, is it the Upper East or the Upper West? There are about three lawyers, three, operating <laughs> there in an entire region. There is such a shortage of legal brains to handle cases across the country, yet we have a system that has created some sort of ivory tower-like you know, um, place where it is just for a few people. And, you know, if I keep on, I, 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 I think I'll just explode, so I'll leave it there. No, but let's don't have a <laughs> No, no I, I do not know. Some of our, our leaders across different, you know, uh, facets of our society, sometimes you look at decisions, it, it, it just makes you, it's like, the whole decision about the SIM card re-registration, let me bring that in. You want people to re-register. Okay, not a problem. Register people. You want them to re-register. Okay, that's fine. Now you, you create impediments because you want them to re-register only with a certain Ghana card. And a lot of people don't have this Ghana card through no fault of theirs. Next thing you know, you, you now want them to pay five CDs for something that has nothing to do with them, something that they did not create. I mean, why is it that in this country everything must be queue, long queue, go stand, bake in the sun? And for me, the most heartbreaking part, elderly people. That, that is what I see that even, you know, racks you know, my heart. Elderly people, 70, septuagenarians, you know, octogenarians and stuff, baking in the sun, sitting for a whole day, people who are supposed to be productive at work just because... They are afraid you will, you know, block them out of the system. To what end? Makes no sense. Makes no sense. I asked one question when I went to re-register my phone. And my question was, how do you take my fingerprints with a camera? Um, what kind of a camera are you using? And, and, and so I, I questioned. And the lady just looked at me because she didn't have an answer. Because you just put your finger there. She uses her phone, and I'm like, do you have my ID card on your phone? And she's just looking at me. So I registered one phone and decided I won't register the other. If they'll block it, they should block it. And, and I intentionally did that. And the one that I did not register is the official phone. So let's see what happens. Because they are not giving us answers to certain questions that we are asking. I thought that if you needed my fingerprint, I would have to thumbprint or uh, fingerprint something. Because I don't see how you're going to get all those lines in my fingers with your camera. 
unless it is a highly sophisticated camera, and I didn't see that. Well, we'll see how things go. The latest we've heard, though, is that people are now, uh, you know, some of them take quick loans. I hear depending on how long you've been with the network, you can take up to 2,000 Ghana CDs and others. And some people, though I am not in support of that because the system has worked, but some people have also taken loans and they're saying, okay, you want to block us out of the system, block us, block those chips, and, and I'm not paying back. But, I mean, that, that is also on the other side criminal, uh, so to speak. But it just tells you that when people hit a brick wall, it's like bouncing a ball against the wall. It will come back, right, right back at you. Now, let me go back to the lawyers, and I have said time and again that I'm surprised that our Ghana Law School has not expanded yet, uh, because like you said, you're talking about the Upper West that has only three lawyers, um, and then you have people saying that we churn out so many lawyers, and what do the lawyers do? Um, if you turn out lawyers, and, and they choose where they want to work, and they choose where they want to stay, then you have a problem like this one. So you realize that in Accra, we might say that there's a concentration of lawyers. Um, um, and then when you go outside of Accra, you don't have that many to attend court as regularly as you want them to. But I think that um, over the years, I've seen the same number of lawyers being trained so lately. And for me, it was a good thing that you have more people wanting to read law. Because if you have a lot more lawyers, if you have people understanding our constitutions and our, and our laws and our acts better, and being able to explain it better to the people, then you know that the people are working within a certain uh, um, uh, permit, per, per, because they understand what they need to do. They understand the, the issues when it comes to law because you have a lot more people who can explain it to them. You have a lot more people that they can go to. But we are not saying that. And when you talk about them trying to um, exclude certain people, then it becomes very worrisome for me. Because if you're taking a certain class of people and you're not taking a certain class of people, are you sure that the class of people that you're taking will go out into the rural areas to work? Hmm. And so we need the law school to grow. We need the law school to expand. And it's good that a lot more people want to read law. I never wanted to read law. I thought that my family had too many lawyers and too many judges. So if I needed anything, I could follow one of them. Um, but it's good, especially for those who are outside of a crime, especially for those who do not understand the law um, in its totality, especially for those who sometimes do certain things and um, question why you think that they've done it wrongly or why they're out of the law. If you're not explaining the law to the people, how do you expect them to be able to abide by them? So I think that we need to do a lot more work when it comes to training lawyers and dealing with our laws and explaining our laws for the ordinary people to understand. We all know that we have a constitution. How many people have the constitution? How many people understand the constitution? So we know we want votes for people to go into parliament, but how many of us understand what they're in parliament for? Mm. And that's I would always be at their doors knocking and asking for money to pay school fees and things because we think that they're in a position to be able to get that money to help us. Mm. And so we need to go real down and make sure that every region, and now we have 16 of them, have enough lawyers 
that will help the citizens because that right. is what they need for. And, and just as I move on to the next story, just one thought that I missed. Uh, again, why can't we have, you know, with the executive MBAs and others, so you have weekend classes, uh, weekend sessions and all of that, or evening sessions. Why can't we do that? So another area of concern in there is they force the system, if you want to read law, you must necessarily stop work. Exactly. Stop work. How do you fund your education? How, how, do, how do you, you know, uh, if you wanted to, look at me, for example. So you want me to stop what I'm doing, come and do law, and maybe come back here, and you expect that, you know, the slot would still be open for me. I mean, the dynamics are, I, sometimes you sit and think about it, and you ask, who are these people thinking in these places? I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm being very blunt. How? In today's world where you don't stop one thing and just move on, to another. People are combining multiple things. You want me to just stop my work, uproot myself. How do you expect me to pay my school fees and all of that? F- final thoughts then. Let's, let's move on. Over, over the years, we have built lawyers into a class of their own. And, and so um, you're privileged to belong to the law fraternity, if I should put it that way. And, and so um, they see a lot more people joining them as watching down what they have. But again, that is not what we are looking at. It's not your status that we are interested in. It's the education of the people. It's the education of the citizenry. It's the building up of a nation that understands its laws um, so that it can work within that, that, that uh, per period. Um, if you don't have people understanding, that's why we will have our, our prisons crowded because nobody's explaining anything to anybody and the little misdemeanor they throw into prison. I mean, we should go beyond that. I even said that the prison system should be expanded such that little misdemeanors you serve like, um, um, what do they call it? Mm. Um, Community service. Remember. Community but service. Community service. You, mm. you do some community service to, to make, make up. Well, well I think recently uh, uh, the president ascended to, assented to plea bargaining, I think. So yes. now there, there, there are going to be some mitigating factors so that people can have but some breathing room. We should have had, should have had that long ago instead of us sticking to one stringent rule of doing things when it comes to the law. And again, when you're talking about people who are working, right now law is like a second, a second degree. You're, you're looking at people who are working, and yet you're expecting them to leave their work and come study. And so who fills in those spaces? And when you finish reading your law and you want to go back to where you're working, you think your employees are waiting for you, they must have filled it up. And like you're saying, why don't we find other ways of training um, lawyers, rather than just have the Ghana Law School that everybody has to go through. Um, there are other faculties of law that have come up with Zenes and King Power and others. But when you finish with those, you definitely have to go through the law school. And the law school has not gone. Mm. Uh, other stories, let's do some business-related stories quickly and move on. Non-traditional export earnings hit $3.3 billion in 2021. Uh, that is an increment from $2.84 billion in 2020 to $3.33 billion in 2021. It represents an increase of 17%. Now, the performance is associated with economic recovery post-COVID-19 on global trade, which the WTO 
forecast to expand with double-digit numbers. I see forecasted in the daily graphic. Forecasted. (laughs) (laughs) So which the World Trade Organization forecast to expand with double-digit numbers. It's like saying broadcasted, which we often, but broadcast. Anyway, so that story and then graphic business. The printer's devil. (laughs) Uh, Is it a printer's devil? Really? Hmm. Business, graphic business. Industry wants say in IMF negotiations and the Association of Ghana Industries, AGI, has expressed uh, readiness to partner the government to negotiate a good deal with the IMF to help accelerate the recovery of the country's economy. And then again, interest cost wipes off 55% of tax revenue. Inflation, CD fall to blame. Let's do the Ghanaian Times uh, newspaper list. On page 17, which is the banner headline, Veep inaugurates 100-kilometer rehabilitated Kumasi roads. Uh, Military officer dies of monkeypox in Bolga. That's a a sad development. Uh, I think outside of Africa, listening to the BBC yesterday, I think only four people have died, but within Africa, quite a number. Uh, Resolve issues surrounding LPG supply to end tanker driver strike. That is COPEC Ghana appealing to government. And transatlantic slave trade in Africa. President demands apology compensation from European nations. Let's focus on page 17, on the issue of LPG uh, drivers and and move on. So the Chamber of Petroleum Consumers Ghana, COPEC Ghana, has urged the government to immediately resolve pending liquefied petroleum gas issues with industry players to restore supply of the product in the country. It said the Ghana National Tanker Drivers Association liquefied petroleum gas uh, marketing companies and the Ghana Liquefied Petroleum Gas Operators Association had withdrawn their services effective yesterday because their concerns had lingered for long. A statement issued in a cry yesterday by COPEC Executive Secretary Danka Amwa said, consumers would continue to bear the brunt as all LPG outlets remain non-operational. Uh, so touching on the genesis of the problems, just to give you more scope, uh, list. It said, uh, that is, the, um, the MPA said, after the atomic gas explosion about five years ago, the MPA and its former chief executive, Hassan Tampuli, directed the freezing of the permits of a number of stations under construction. Several years down the line, this ban is yet to be lifted, thereby leaving the various companies who had invested heavily in the construction of these retail points heavily debt-distressed as they are constantly harassed by their banks and other finance entities who had advanced various loans to put up these stations. So again, policy. Something catastrophic happened. In fact, I was in the neighborhood and I felt what had happened then, the explosion. On the back of that, you put in place measures to regulate, mitigate the situation. What do you do ahead of that or after that? Put in measures as well so that these people don't lose out. All you need to do is ensure they are in compliance. But here we are. We're resolving one problem and creating other problems at the same time. And, and I, am, I am here thinking how long has this gone on? Um, again, I can feel the pain of, of, the, of the, uh, the drivers and those who are involved in uh, LPG distribution um, because if, if for several years your source of income, let me use the word advisedly, is being toyed with, 
then then you'd want to find out what exactly is happening to you. And when you talk about people's debt um, not being paid and they're not they're not being productive, so they can't they can't really pay their debts, and so the interest is accruing. So you'd owe the banks far more than you envisage that you'd owe them. But again, then your job too is, is on the line because you're not producing or you're not doing as well as you expected that you begin. So all these questions are running through my mind and you said yes, it's back to policy and why has government waited so long? Do we always have to come to the point where somebody has to protest before um, we act? It appears that's the only language we understand. Which is bad because then it means that somebody is not doing their work. Whose table is it on? Why is the person not taking action? Why is the person still at post after so many years? Mm. And, and, and these are questions that keep running through my mind because if you want a smooth system, then you should have people who are there who know what they have to do and are doing what they have to do. Otherwise, we will keep going forward and coming backward and going forward and coming backward. Fine, there was an explosion in, was it the one in uh, atomic, yes. the one at atomic reaction? Yes. So there was that explosion. So you needed to ensure that all these people were complying with uh, regulations so that you don't have a leakage that will cause that much havoc anymore. Who is going around? Who is doing the monitoring? Who is doing the evaluation? Who is going around to make sure that all these LPGs Stations are well protected. Hmm. I remember hmm. there was one at Trade Fair even before the the atomic junction one, and and so my question was ah, but there was one recently we lost very um, close friends and loved ones. Why are we waiting for another one to okay? Another one has okayed, and up till now nothing has been done. So right. it, it's. We don't know what we are doing. We are not serious with what we have to do. Mm. And if we are using LPG so we keep our forest, and you are not making sure that people get it and at reasonable prices, then we are well, just going to... What, what are we doing then? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's just wrap with these two stories very quickly. I'll read a number of stories, but I'll focus on two, just two, and uh, maybe in a minute and a half we can wrap with those. The Daily Guide newspaper... NPP foot soldiers cry for reshuffle. I'll be telling you a bit about that. Daughter killer uh, dashes to court. There's a picture here of uh, Oliver Baka Vomawo, Kumanga, as they put it here, set for high court trial. More projects coming, Baumia assures Asanteman. Uh, there's also the Finder newspaper. SIM card registration centers empty following deadline extension, but NIA head office remains inundated. There's... Uh, Japanese government donates 23 vehicles to Ghana Police Service. Yeah, this is what we know. Uh, receiving every time. When are we also going to grow up and give? Even the Bible says it. There's more, uh, you know, joy. It's, it's better to, you know, give than receive. We're always going pan in hand. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Reminds me of a boy in Liberia, Monrovia, back then. Uh, interesting story. Maybe I'll tell you someday, Liz. And then the Meridian... <laughs> NPA assists Zambia to fight fuel adulteration. Interesting. So those two stories I want you to look at. NPP foot soldiers cry for reshuffle. And the group is Alliance for Foot Soldiers Advocacy, which is appealing to President Akufuado to reshuffle his ministers as a matter of urgency. Ministers, deputy ministers, CEOs, they want them 
uh, reshuffled, and the finder, uh, Japanese government donates 23 vehicles to Ghana, as well as SIM card registration centers, empty following the pushing of the deadline. You can pick two and react to them in a minute, and we're off. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about reshuffling, and I'm wondering, um, when you reshuffle, it's the same ministers that you're moving around. Um, but have we seen the ministers uh, get A+. Plus? I think a reshuffle should also be able to include uh, getting someone who is not performing out and bringing someone someone completely different in. Exactly. But again, I am saying that have we been able to um, examine, to know those who should stay and those who should go? Um, If you look at the ministries that you, you probably deal with, is it anything to write home about? I, I, I sit and, and watch and I think that um, there's a lot that needs to be done. Reshuffling alone is, is, won't solve our problems. Uh, we need to build strong institutions. And if our ministries, departments and agencies are not strong institutions, then we have a lot of work to do. Mm. So, yes, maybe a reshuffle will help us because new ideas will be brought in and people will be able to think outside the box and become creative and, and do certain things differently. But we as a people should also call for certain things. Apart from reshuffling, we should make sure that our ministries are up and doing, our departments and agencies are up and doing. And I think that if, if we call for that and we insist that we get um, value for money as we got the services that we are expecting them to put up, then we will we'll be way, way ahead. We won't, we won't be dragging our feet or we won't be crawling. Right. Um, you mentioned another SIM card one, one. registration centers. Now, the deadline has been postponed and uh, all of a sudden they are empty again. I guess it's, a, it's a, a cat and mouse situation. Maybe some 20 seconds on that. I believe that people think that now they have time, so they, they are not pressed. You know, people would leave anything they are doing just to go and queue to get it um, registered because it's, you have a deadline and if you don't get it done. And so people left their jobs and everything and went to queue. Um, now that it has been extended, um, I think that Ghanaians may like last minute, but I believe that over time, what I don't see right. is um, and NCA.